rest of us go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Matthew. If uh, you don't have a Bible, there should be one on a chair near you. Definitely grab one so you can follow along and see the words. Matthew chapter 7. Matthew is in the New Testament. After the book of Malachi, the first book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, Matthew 7. We're doing a verse-by-verse study through the book of Matthew, one verse at a time. We've been out of it just for a bit now. We'll be back in, Lord willing. Beginning chapter 7. We'll see how far we get this evening. Matthew chapter 7. Well, misunderstandings and misuses of the Bible are nothing out of the ordinary. It's a, a rich book, a thick book, 62, 66 excuse me, books. But this particular verse, passage, I should say, that we're going to study this evening uh, is what many agree to be the most misunderstood and the most misused passage in the entire Bible, especially among American Christianity, which I trust will become clear as we dive in here. The most misunderstood. It is not an easy verse to understand, an easy passage. And so through the power of the Holy Spirit, taking our time, we will dive in and see what God has for us this evening. Follow along as I read. I'm going to read verse 1 through chapter 6, our Lord's words. Matthew 7, verse 1, reading through verse 6. Jesus says, verse 1, Do not judge. So that you will not be judged for in the way you judge, you will be judged and by your standard of measure it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is your in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye and behold, the log is in your own eye. You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearls before swine or they'll trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Well, a reminder where we're at here, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. Uh, it is one entire sermon, the most famous and what is considered to be the greatest sermon ever preached. Not surprisingly, preached by uh, the God-man, Christ, fully God, fully man, as he is on his way to the cross. This is a sermon he is preaching very frequently, it is thought, throughout the region of Galilee to the many uh, few hundred villages around the Sea of Galilee in the first century. Uh, And he is, among other things, correcting things about God, about uh, the misunderstandings about who God is, the misunderstandings about what God is like what it means to know him and go to heaven and what he wants for our lives. And this instance in verses one through six is especially the case here. It is a pointed one. It is uh, sort of uh, many or many verses like this in the Bible. But this is especially one of those verses where the Lord, by his grace and in his love for us, desires to put us up on the operating table and open us up. Uh, It is not a verse that he gives us to arm ourselves against others. uh, It is neither a verse to use as sort of a shield and a sword to swat at others. 
It is a verse that he says, I love you, trust me, get on the operating table now, and I'm going to care for you. These passages, appointed one. And again, as mentioned, it has come under grave misunderstanding and misuse. And hopefully that will no longer be the case for us if it is this evening. So with that, let's get right into it. Our our, uh, helicopter view of this study of these verses is this. It's in your bulletin. I'll put it up um, on the uh, slide as well here. It is this. Once we are forgiven, uh, once we're forgiven and saved through faith in Christ, our relationships transform. Both those inside, I'll add this, both inside the body of Christ and outside, our relationships transform, importing God's transforming care with new levels of trust and transparency, yet a new grace safety that allows for confronting each other in humility. Once we're saved, if you sign up to go to heaven through faith in Christ, then you sign up through transformed relationships, importing God's transforming care with new levels of trust and transparency, yet this new grace safety that allows for confronting each other in humility. This is to be the norm in God's kind of relationships, what we'll study this evening. Biblical, biblical Christianity really sees relationships as those which have God's imported care into them. Uh, when uh, we are saved by faith in Christ, of course, we're on our way to heaven. We put faith in Christ. But on the cross, as a sort of uh, preamble to this study, on the cross, God really made a, uh, a loud and a clear statement about the severity of our need, of our sin. It is The cross was not something that was done in the corner of the universe, but it is something outward. It was a statement on God's part to show a couple of things, how sinful we are, how morally and spiritually needy we are, and at the same time, how loving and merciful God is to address our need. And so the cross that really happened wide open in history for all to see, again, is a statement of both our great human need and God's great divine love. And so when we experience this forgiveness, this love by bowing the knee in faith to Christ as Lord and Savior. It's not only our relationship that God, with God that instantly changes, but it's also our relationships with one another. There is a horizontal effect from the vertical. We, when, we, you know, when we get saved and when we operate with God daily, we often are confessing to Him, asking His forgiveness, and, and we accept his verdict of how needy we are. And, but there's this amazing honesty and transparency that I know when I got saved, I was just floored by this transparency that we have with God that, that we, can, we can be just open with him because he already knows who we are anyways. But we need not simultaneously be terrified with God. It is the beauty of Christ. We can, we can bear all our sin, but not have this terror. Why? Because Christ did the work to take our terror and to take our shame and to take our guilt and be punished for it. And so we're, we have this grace safety in Christ. God looks at us as in Christ because we are. Christ took it all. And so there's this stunning Patience and mercy, we begin to understand that God has with us and he's had our entire lives. So then this patience and this honesty that we receive, that this honesty we can have with God and this transparency with that lack of fear, 
That is to be imported into our relationships with one another. We are under God's grace when we're saved because we're in Christ, not because of our moral deeds. And so that produces this this under grace that we operate with each other. It is a grace safety that binds us all together then. But the key here to, to remember is that this is not something that we construct and give this, this safety of grace, so much as it is something we've already received that God has given to us in Christ, and then we just sort of reflect what we've already received to one another. We receive it. And then true biblical relationships in the body of Christ become an, sort of an experiencing and a giving and receiving of that with one another and towards one another. And so there is this new care that it, it is to be modeled in the body of Christ with all genuine Christians. Again, we're saved into the body. We're not saved into individual body parts. We're saved into the body of Christ, that relationship of togetherness. But then we have this deep trust with one another. We have this pointed honesty with one another. We have this unafraid transparency with one another. We have a willingness to confront one another without fear and shame. Because again, the God has already showed on the cross what we're like. And he's accepted us in Christ. And then we have this committed endurance one another where there's no eject button in our relationships. Why? Because we're saved into the body. That's who we are. We have this committed endurance and there is no contradiction in our tension with any of those. They fit in together perfectly. That is what Christianity is, is to look like. That's the consequence of being a Christian. We sign up for it, and it's wonderful and hard and uncomfortable. So with that then, let's dive in and see how that works out. An example of this from our outline, we're going to see two essentials then. Our outline this evening, two essentials for God's kind of relationships. Two essentials for God's kind of relationships Number one is this. God's kind of relationships avoid the dangers of wrong judging. Avoid the dangers of wrong judging. And then we'll see number two. This is a preview. God's kind of relationships embrace the right kind of judging. We'll get to that in a bit. Now, we're going to spend the majority of our time under this point number one here. God's kind of relationships avoid the dangers of wrong judging, verse 1 through 5. And there's going to be about eight subpoints under this first point. Eight subpoints. The first one is this, and I'll put them up here. The first subpoint is, first, understand what judging is not. Understand what judging is not. Go ahead and look at verse 1 with me. Do not judge. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. The Greek word here for judge has the idea of to separate, to distinguish, to sift, uh, to assess or divide, divide out. The word itself is neither positive nor negative. It's a neutral word. And again, because of the misuse, let's talk a bit about what this does not mean, first of all. Number one, it does not mean this. It does not mean you'll go to heaven if you never say anything about others' sin. It does not mean you'll go to heaven 
if you never say anything about another's sin. Why, who says that, Eric? This is a very common interpretation. Why? Because it says, do not judge so that you'll not be judged. Meaning, well, if I never say anything about anybody, God won't judge me and I'll go right to heaven. Very common understanding. This, so this does not mean a blanket affirmation on all people, all ideas, all beliefs. That is not what it is saying. Some have taken it to mean that. So they say, in effect, well, who am I to say that behavior X or belief Y is right or wrong, which that person did? After all, it says, do not judge. That is not what this means. And some suppose that since they never gave an unfavorable judgment of anyone's life, then by default, they will stand before God after death and he will not give an unfavorable judgment on theirs either. So they'll go to heaven. They know, of course, that they're not perfect, those who take this interpretation, but they suppose by their hyper-affirmation and acceptance of others combined with a refusal to ever conclude that an individual's actions were wrong, they suppose that those two things will combine to earn them their entrance into heaven in God's favor. That is the most common understanding of this verse. However, there are so many errors here. That is a a belief in a system which counts on one's own works as sufficient to remove the penalty for our sins and go to heaven. Heaven by blanket affirmation of everybody and refusal to ever say anything negative about a person. But that is not what the Bible teaches. That's untrue. We can only get to heaven by Christ's sinless life and his death on the cross and his resurrection for us by faith in him. Not by our works, but by his sufficient works. It is Christ's works on the cross that eliminate our insufficient works, our sinful works. And thereby we're accepted with God. So this this view of Matthew 7 supposes that the ticket to heaven is don't make a conclusion on another's deeds. Of course, the second problem with this view is that those who espouse it have all failed it. And so none of them can get to heaven by the way that they think they can get to heaven. Not one person ever has lived a life where they have always refrained from making a negative assessment on another's behavior. There is nobody who has ever done that. No one. So then those who advocate this ironically demonstrate themselves condemned by their own unfortunate, erroneous belief. They hold to a system that condemns them. Also, this belief is sort of a dehumanizing belief. It is dehumanizing. How so? Let's get into it a little bit. The second thing this doesn't mean, that we should refrain from all types of judging. It does not mean that. Sort of a little different angle from the first. Again, that is one of the more common ways this verse is subject to biblical malpractice. Because to discern or to judge again, being a neutral concept, is a God-given mechanism that is essential to our humanity. It is part of our humanity. We judge every day in every sphere of life. You wake up early and you look outside, you look at the weather, you judge the weather. It's cold today, I'll dress warmer, I warm up the car. We go to the grocery store. We meticulously and fiercely judge at the grocery store. Some of you are amazing how judgmental you are in the produce aisle. I mean, 
that apple could be 94% red, but if it's 6% brown, man, you judge that thing, I will not take it. How judgmental of you. So judgmental. And then you'll proceed to the next style and read the ingredients label. Oh my goodness, high fructose corn syrup and partially hydrogenated oil. And you judge that thing and you will not take it. You do not receive it or accept it. How unaccepting of you. And the the judgment goes on. You drive down the road. Someone drives a certain way. You effortlessly judge them in your mind. Your car makes an odd noise. You judge your car. I better take it to the mechanic. Something is wrong with your car. How judgmental of you to say that about your car. Dentists, doctors, you do the exact same thing. And you even talk to other people about it. Uh, Don't go to that one. This one is expensive. That is judging. That's judging. And then when it comes to finding a spouse, look out. We have our unspoken book-sized lists, scrutinizing, judging, screening. It's amazing. And politics as well. We judge, we discern, we analyze. And even in our jobs also. No, that quality of work is not acceptable. We need to do this. Take that thing back. Return it. You're called to jury duty. You're called to look at evidence and make a judgment. We're given... Furthermore, and most important matters, we're given the word of God in this holy book, which presents evidence and facts about who God is as we sing. He is holy. Who we are, we are not. What Christ has done, he has loved us and he's died for us. And we're called to look at what the Bible lays out and judge ourselves and make a judgment and then make a decision on that judgment, namely that I need Christ and I need to turn to him and repent and believe in him. We're made by God to see and discern and judge. So to throw out all judgment is to basically open up our brains and dump out our mind and to clip open our soul, cut open our soul and dump out our humanity. It is dehumanizing to say that we ought not judge. Christ is not saying we should refrain from all types of judging. Some, I think it was Tolstoy who used this verse to say that there shouldn't be a court system. Shouldn't even be a court system. We should not have gavels, as it were. Second, third, it doesn't mean we should refrain from confronting or addressing each other's sins. It does not mean that. This is one of the more common ways it's used. Kevin DeYoung says this. He says, some of us operate with a Bible which has three verses. Matthew 7, 1, John 8, 7, and 1 John 4, 16. Those are the only verses we operate with. Matthew 7, 1, do not judge. Matthew 8, 7, he who is without sin throws the first stone, which is not actually inspired scripture. And 1 John 4, 16, God is love. Never mind the other 31,000 verses which the Bible has spoken. Everything about their whole theology is that, and basically God loves whatever I am doing. End quote. It's the idea that whatever I want to believe, don't cast a stone on it. You can't judge it because God is love. He loves whatever I believe. And however I want to live, you may not cast a stone for the same reason. God is love becomes the interpretation of God loves whatever I want to do and believe. So you may not address me in a way I do not want. So in reality, this interpretation makes God this being uh, who is our personal cosmic cheerleader. Uh, He paints himself up in my colors. And he gets pom-poms in my colors. 
And wherever uh, he wears an outfit in my colors and travels with me in the back of my proverbial fan bus, wherever I go, and he cheers me on and he says, go you and whatever I'm doing and believing, go you. That's how this interpretation and functionally operates. Do you operate with a three verse Bible like that? Do you operate as if God is your cosmic cheerleader? Go you. Whatever you want to believe or do, whenever, oh, it's all about you. Just slap the, the QC check on there. As I have done, another common way we use God as our cheerleader in that way is using this verse as a self-defense tactic to slap away any inquiry into our shortcomings. Like a goalie will pull out this verse and bam, you may not talk to me about that. You may not judge. After all, God's my cheerleader. I don't like how you're addressing my sin right now, so I'll pull out the don't judge card. But we can just so overplay that card, can't we? Man, that card is the most overplayed card in our nation. Because of a lot of the post-postmodern decadence and these kind of things. The Lord doesn't give us this verse, though, as a goalie to slap away others' inquiry. And ironically, when we pull the you're being judgmental card against people, we are, we are typically committing the very thing ourselves that we're accusing them of. We're commanded to point out error sometimes and to discern. We'll see that in verse 6. Christ says there are certain people in verse 6 that are dogs and pigs. You need to judge and discern. And then he'll get into verse 15 and 20 on false prophets. That at least means we're to gain adequate knowledge and use discernment to correctly judge on these kind of things. Also recall a few other verses. Uh, Romans 16, 17 here. Um, I urge you, Paul says in Romans, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learn. Turn away from them. Titus 1, 9. Holding fast, this is an elder qualification of a pastor. Hold fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching. Why, Paul? So that he'll be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. First John 4, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, or every, every doctrine is the idea, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God, because many false prophets have gone into the world. And then, of course, Matthew 18, 15, If your brother sins, don't judge. No, love him enough in humility and go and show him his fault in private. So the, uh, that is clearly, it does not mean that you may never comment and make inquiry into one another's lives. Okay, that's cleared up. What it does not mean, then second, what it does mean. Understand what judging is then. Number two, understand what judging is. Recall the context here. The context into which Jesus is speaking. Uh, He is addressing much religious error, which is helpful in itself to understand what it means, right? Uh, but he's, he, there's this group of leaders in Judaism at the time called the Pharisees who dominated and dicta- dictated what God was like erroneously to many of Jesus' hearers. Christ is commenting them often, which will clue us in. I mean, these guys, these guys were sinfully judgmental. I mean, go read, you know, later read passages like Matthew 23. The woes, the eight woes Christ gives. I believe it's Matthew 23. 
But here's the general idea, what this means. It means making an unfavorable conclusion on another based on unbiblical standards and or with an unbiblical attitude. Making an unfavorable conclusion on another based on unbiblical standards and or with an unbiblical attitude. Inherit superiority, self-made superiority, self-righteousness. Grant Osborne writes, looking down on a person with a superior attitude, criticizing or condemning them without a loving concern. John MacArthur writes, what Jesus here forbids is self-righteous, hasty, unmerciful, prejudiced, and unwarranted condemnation based on human, human standards and human understanding. The primary concern, he writes, was not to help others from sin to holiness, but to condemn them to eternal judgment because of actions and attitudes that did not square with their own worldly self-made traditions, is the idea. So I want to flesh this out with, kind of state that in sort of five examples or five applications. What judging is, sinful judging. And this will, this will basically just kind of walk around those definitions and flesh them out a little bit. Viewing people from self-made standards by which we presume to be, a, to be a favorable human being, either to God or a false God or above others. Viewing people from self-made standards by which we presume to be favorable to God or favorable just ourselves. Self-made standards. Again, this is a lot of what the Pharisees did. Supposing that because of their hand washing and their certain hours of prayer and their certain standing of prayer, things that were unscriptural, you know, meticulous Sabbath observing and adding all their laws to it, that because they adhered to that, because they cleared the bar, that they could then look down on people from that standard, which is no, it's, it's a human made standard. And this happens all the time, both in Christianity and outside. We, we focus in on like one little doctrine and that becomes our stance and we think that we're going to heaven or better in heaven because of others because of that. Or because a lot of times in the culture where I grew up in Western Oregon, if you, uh, if you recycle or if you don't vote Republican and these kind of things, that this is, I'm, I'm dead serious, this is a stance through which we, you, they're like a grid through which you're viewed. And you're judged based on those things. I agree with Martin Lloyd-Jones when he said of this passage, he said the best way to illustrate what the Lord means here is to think of the Pharisees. One example is Luke 18. I'll put it up here, 9 through 14. Uh, you recall uh, the, the particular example. Jesus told them this parable to people who trusted in themselves. Again, trusted in themselves for what? Trusted in themselves that they were going to heaven by their own standard. That they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. Oh God, I thank you. I'm not like other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. You know, pointing to him as it were. I fast. You know, it's a prayer to himself. It's a prayer of self-applause. But that will always be the case when we have an unbiblical gospel or an unbiblical standard by which we suppose to be acceptable to God. Well, I, I 
and very moral. And so automatically, unbiblical standards will automatically fuel this sinful judging. So we've got to have such an accurate, correct gospel. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes. So he assumes that fasting and tithing are the things that, that sort of make him right with God, forgetting that it's not knowing that it's Christ it is. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful. The Greek word means be propitious. It means, God, extinguish the anger that I deserve. Your anger towards me, extinguish it, O God. Elsewhere, please be merciful to me, the sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man, the man who knew that God was angry at him, that he deserved God's anger, but asked for mercy, this man is justified, declared in the right rather than the other. And that would just be a bomb in Judaism of the day. Because the former, the Pharisee, is super judgmental there. These unbiblical standards. Second, it's the idea of, uh, similarly, but moving on from just salvation, setting up unbiblical standards by which we make judgments on others. Setting up unbiblical standards by which we make judgments on others. By which we make judgments on others. One example would be racism. And that was very common also in, in Judaism. Racism. If you weren't a Jew, phew, forget it. It's one that's been a topic around the nation in recent months. To make an unfavorable moral conclusion on an individual because of race, that's sinful judging. Another example would be one's socioeconomic status. Making an unfavorable conclusion on someone because they're either in a high or a low income bracket. That's wicked, sinful judging. Or believing the worst for no reason at all. Christ said to the Pharisees, again, he says, John 7, 24, sort of fleshing this out, I'll put it up here. John 7, 24, he says, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Again, don't judge by unbiblical standards. Stick to Scripture. Or one other, another example could be taking a stance on doctrine which is peripheral and minor, matters of no significance. In, in Romans 14, you can look at that later, this is what Paul is doing there. He's addressing there as an issue in the Roman church where they're going after each other because of foods that each other ate. This, this happens in our day, not for the same reason. And drink that others would drink. And certain religious days that others would observe. Some of the Jews were still who had just gotten saved. were like, man, uh, it's kind of against my conscience to not do the Sabbath thing. Paul says, don't judge them because of that. And so he says, Romans 14, 17. I'll put it up here. He says, look, the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. It's not food. It's righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Do not, do not import your standards and then start to sort of sift people through those false standards. Third, this also has the idea of making a moral conclusion on others without mercy and humility. Making a moral conclusion on others without mercy and humility, or without the humble acknowledgement that we have sinned in these areas too. That we have sinned in these areas. Coming to unfavorable conclusions without efforts to repent, as we'll see in a minute in verse 3. 
Again, we might not, the conclusions that we make on an individual when we're coming alongside them, they might, we might not have sinned outwardly in that same way, but perhaps inwardly. You know, say someone who's in physical adultery, you might not have committed physical adultery, but Christ brings the standard to spiritual. To, he's, yeah, he says in Matthew 5, you've all done it mentally and spiritually. So do not bring this lack of humility with your conclusion on others. So judging, sinful judging, comes at people with this attitude of, I want you to be more like me, honoring me and adhering to my words, and you probably need to cross less than me. Not judging, when you address people's shortcomings, has the attitude, you know what, I want you to live a life that is more like Christ and closer to Christ, just like I need to, because I need the cross, perhaps even more than you. Judging sinfully says, I want you to live a life that is more exalting of me. Not judging says, I love you enough to try to deal with my sin, come alongside you, help you deal with yours, knowing that it is God's will to do so. And I want you to be more like him. You have to be very careful. Fourth, fleshing this out, this idea of judging, unbiblical attitudes and the way we make conclusions on others. Unbiblical attitudes when we address others. Again, similar to the last one. You recall the example in Luke 6 when Jesus is at Simon's house and, this, and this, the, the, there's a bunch of Pharisees and a prostitute comes in and she has experienced the Lord's forgiveness and is wiping his feet with her tears and Simon says, <laughs> Christ, if this if you were a prophet, he'd know what kind of a sinful individual this was. And in his mind, he makes this conclusion with a totally unbiblical attitude. She's coming to him for forgiveness. And he has this attitude like he's made it to heaven by his own doing and morality. Fifth, Making a conclusion without knowing the facts of the situation. Making these hasty conclusions without knowing the facts. Proverbs 18.13, He who answers the matter before he hears, it is folly and shame to him. And so this is obviously a hot-button issue, and it is probably no stretch to say That as we read this verse and understand it, vivid thoughts pop up in all our minds of people who we think have done these things and of people in our, in our minds who, man, in our sort of the, we have, some of us have this little file, they are a judgmental file. And while that's probably true, let's pause and just stop for a second and let's all be courageous enough to admit, like all the other things in the Sermon on the Mount, we are totally guilty of this. Even Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote here, I love what he says in his comment of it, how guilty we are in this respect, exclamation point. There is a tendency for this thing to spoil all our lives and to rob us of our happiness. It is a word to every one of us, he says. Unless we're Jesus, we all have a little bit of Pharisee in us. We need Christ. That's what judging is. Well, third, third, God will judge us 
for our unbiblical judging. God will judge us for our unbiblical judging. Notice the end of verse 1. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way, verse 2, you judge, you'll be judged. And by your standard of measure, it'll be measured to you. So Christ provides the motivation here for not judging. And he is not advocating karma here. He is not saying, well, be nice to others so they be nice to you. That is a misunderstanding of the verse. This is about glorifying God. Biblically speaking, the operational principle in relationships is not, okay, be super nice so that others are nice to you. That's how this verse is taken often. But it's the idea of man, glorify God so that he is pleased in how we operate in our relationships. No, as Lloyd-Jones says, the idea is that so that we will not be judged by the Lord. If we judge, we shall be judged because we sinned by judging sinfully. And the way you judge, you'll be judged by your standard. Again, keep, keep the biblical definition of judging in mind here. It seems like there, is, there are two things going on here. First, this is demonstrating it's sort of a warning for the unsaved who are enslaved to judging others, like Pharisees, for example, but not restricted to them. It's a warning to the unsaved, but also, it could apply that way. But it seems also the judgment, it is talking about the judgment of believers at the judgment seat. We'll look, we'll look at that in a few minutes here. All believers will face the judgment seat, 2 Corinthians 5.10, we will not be sent out of heaven. There is no condemnation in Christ, but there's these believers' judgment. Christ is not saying karma here. He's saying, if you commit sin by sinfully judging as a believer, when you get to heaven and face the believers' judgment, God will judge you for that. You'll lose reward for that. It's objective with respect to God, not subjective with respect to human beings. Romans 2 is a helpful parallel. Paul says this in Romans 2. He says, therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. He's speaking to unsaved religious Jews here. Who who thought they could go to heaven by their own works and their own Jewishness. He says, for that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God, do you see that? It's God. The judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. So this is uh, Romans 2 is a parallel to this Matthew 7, 1 through 2 here. Paul is basically saying this. If you have enough moral knowledge to even think in your mind, I can't believe they're like that. Then you demonstrate yourself as having enough moral knowledge by which you are totally guilty before God. It's before God. If you can complain about somebody, Paul is saying, then you have enough knowledge to create a standard in your mind such that you could see, get angry, complain, and therefore God's going to judge you, is the idea.
Paul says, look, as you're judging, you're just racking up your condemnation because you're doubly guilty because you're evidencing not only that you've committed the sin itself, but that you have this standard that you know about and you're just violating it and violating it and violating it and God will hold you accountable for that. It's like a professor's uh, imagine a professor's assistant, assistant in an advanced calculus class who helps grade papers. Okay? He has sufficient knowledge to grade the papers. And if you were to take a test, say the professor then gives the assistant the grader a test one day, he could not say, well, just adjudicate my knowledge of the subject with a basic arithmetic uh, exam. Uh, just, just basic arithmetic. No. Because by grading the papers, you demonstrate you have sufficient knowledge for advanced calculus. So you're going to be judged on that. So wrong judging, the, the idea here is that when we sinfully judge, it will result in God judging us again in two overall ways. Either number one, 2 Corinthians uh, 5, 9, and 10, we'll put it up here. Therefore, Paul says, look, we have as our ambition, our operating statement as Christians, is to be pleasing to Him, to Christ. Why? Because we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so each may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he's done, whether good or bad. That's the idea in which we'll be judged. It is not, well, what goes around comes around. Again, sometimes that is true, but that's not what this verse means. And second, in the context of the Pharisees, if, if we're an individual who is just perpetually judgmental in this sinful way on biblical standards, on biblical attitudes, peering, peering through our own self-righteousness, Paul says you're not saved. You do not know God, Romans 2. You need to become a Christian and God will forgive you by faith in Christ. He will forgive you. He forgives judgmental people because that's all there is before we come to faith in Christ. D.A. Carson writes on this, the judgmental person, by not being forgiving and loving, testifies to his own arrogance and impenitence by which he shuts himself out from God's forgiveness. Another example is from Esther, chapter 7. The story of Esther. Remember Haman. Haman is uh, the king's assistant, the Persian king. This is about 4th, 5th century B.C. And he has something against Mordecai. Right? One of Esther's relatives. Mordecai doesn't bow down to him because Mordecai worships God, not Haman. And so the events unfold and, and Haman, he wants to do what? He says, I'm going to create these gallows upon which I can hang Mordecai and for that matter, extinguish the Jews. Of course, what happens to Haman? By his own standard, right? In God's sovereignty, he gets, he's the one that's hanged. Uh, the 5th century B.C. historian, Greek historian Herodotus, Herodotus records a sobering story which illustrates this. Apparently in ancient Persia there was once a corrupt judge named Sisimnus under King Cambyses II of Persia. And uh, Sisimnus accepted a bribe, a bribe on one occasion in order to pronounce a false verdict in a judgment situation. And so you may know the story to, to really uh, put a vivid word picture and reminder to all judges thereafter. They had Sisimnus skinned 
and they put his skin and, and, and put his skin over the new judgment chair upon which all future judges would sit as a reminder that we may not judge by our own sort of subjective self-made standards. Okay? Well, third, and we've got to hurry. Uh, fourth, we've got to hurry here. Our sin can distort accurately seeing others and blind us to our own. Our sin can distort us accurately seeing others and blind us to our own sin. Key operating principle in relationships, beloved. Huge. Whoever claimed, by the way, that Jesus did not have a sense of humor never studied this verse. This is a pointed word picture intended to put the focus back on, to, to take the focus of our irritation of others, put it on ourselves. And it is really a, a uh, tragicomedy at its finest in brief amount of words. Notice what he says in verse 3. Why do you look, and so he's fleshing out the principle he just said in verse 1 and 2. Why do you look at the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? The speck, the, the Greek word, it means like a tiny piece of sawdust, uh, a small splinter. It's something, there is something, but it's small. That's in your brother's eye. Notice brother there. But notice, you do not notice the log that's in your own eye. There's this contrast. Two characters in the story. And log, the Greek word, is, it's, he's not talking about a cute little 14-inch log that you throw in your wood stove at home. The Greek word means these long roof beams that they would use in first century Palestinian homes. And the hearer would know exactly what he was talking about as the air got thick here. A long timber used in construction. In the ancient East, they had flat roofs and they would, they would support the roofs with these huge... Everyone knew. They saw them every day in their homes. These huge beams. So he says, look, in your judgmental moments, you're like a guy walking around with this 20-foot beam just smacking people. Smacking people again. It's funny until we understand that Christ is talking about us. You. Me. The point is, though, that our sin can distort accurately seeing others and blind us. And beware if we're thinking, oh, oh man, I hope so-and-so is listening. You're the guy with the roof beam right now. You're the guy. Well, progressing fifth, repentance then, number five, positions us. Repentance. Repentance positions us. To humbly see others' faults. Repentance. Verse 4, notice, he says, How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, behold the logs in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye. Our Lord being so brilliant and omniscient, he'll... He's going to cover both realms of human interaction here. Seeing others' faults, seeing, thinking about others' faults, 
and speaking, addressing others' faults. Notice in verse 3, why do you look at the speck? Seeing and just not saying anything yet, but thinking. And then in verse 4, how can you say? And then we speak and address them. The idea is, before we meditate on, look at, have our buttons pushed over others' faults, repent of our own And then in verse 4, speaking, before we speak of, comment on, address another's faults, push pause. Push pause, friend. It's good to do so. Just push pause. Wait. Give time for the Holy Spirit to work in our own hearts to check our motives. Let wisdom set in. And wait for the other person as well. Maybe something else is going on with the other person. Sometimes we're so spiritually trigger-happy with each other. But repentance helps us see clearly. And we might not always have a particular roof beam in our eye, but it's the idea that our position and our demeanor needs to be one of ready repentance. That is Christian spirituality, by the way. And I personally struggled to understand this at times. And I found that others do too. I've struggled to apply this. That to get the log out of our eye, it means repentance. And often we, think, often we think of change, not in terms of repentance, but in behavior only. Not in my heart, but something like, oh, well, change, it means, okay, I will say things in a way so that you will not think I'm angry. Or I'll say things in a way so that you don't get upset or frustrated. I'll say things so you don't take it the wrong way. That's often how spirituality is approached. And often we see much of our conflict here as, oh, okay, the person didn't like what I did. They're bothered by that. So I'll just adjust how I say things around them and adjust adjust what I say around them so that particular person does not get worked up. And so that person doesn't think I said anything wrong. Do you see how approach, that approach to spirituality? It is bad. That's painting the roses red. That's duct taping oranges to the dead, withering orange tree. But true Christian repentance, Christian spirituality, it is blessed are the poor in spirit. Matthew 5, 3, how he started serving. Blessed are those who mourn. And it's something that we don't decide to do in tricky, crafty behavior, but something the Holy Spirit does inside of us. And because it's easy to confuse repentance, I want to I, I, I go through and give like 12, 12 or 13 quick contrasts so that we understand better how to remove the log out of our eye and discern these things. I'll put them up here. We'll, don't, tr- don't try to write them down. We're just going to go super fast. Number one, true godly repentance defends God's glory, God's word at the expense of self. False non-repentance defends self, self's glory and self's words at the expense of God and others. False non-repentance, number two, gets most worked up by someone having the nerve to point out their faults and sins. True Christian repentance gets most worked up about having offended God and sinned against others. Third, false repentance meticulously analyzes one's own behavior, looking for evidences of their own moral success and holding it up before others as evidence that, in fact, the one confronting them is way off. True repentance humbly looks for evidences of one's own failure, failure, 
holds it up before God and others as evidence that they do have specific sin and as such greatly need Jesus. Fourth, false repentance frequently claims to be confused when their sin is addressed, unable and or unwilling to see one's own deeper heart pride and will use their own spiritual fog as a screen and a red herring from their deep issues. Oh, there's fog here. But true godly repentance experiences clarity when their sin is addressed, is able and willing to see one's deeper pride, though it is tough, and will see, identify, and admit to the issues without a red herring tactic. Sixth, fifth, excuse me. False repentance claims to be a sinner, imperfect, and needs Christ, but when it comes down to specific examples, it will not be willing to see and embrace him and may insincerely apologize. There's never any specifics, in other words. True repentance claims to be a sinner, imperfect, and needs Christ. And when it comes to specific examples, it's willing to see and embrace them, genuinely acknowledging one's own fault. It's the idea that my wife sometimes tries to help me. Eric, your office could be cleaned up. And I say, yeah, generally it could be cleaned up. But when it comes to her, she comes in and says, okay, the book's here, the paper's here. Well, don't, don't give me any specifics. Don't tell me about that. Just let's operate in generalities. Generally, it needs cleaning, but let's not ever do anything. That's wicked, man. That's a log in your eye. Number six, false non-repentance will learn how to respond to sin being addressed by manufacturing surface-level manipulative apologies, though having little deep sorrow in one's heart over their sin. Christian repentance will respond to their sin being addressed by sincere heart-level confession and requests for forgiveness of specific sin. I've done all of these, by the way. Have you? Number seven, false non-repentance wants to wrangle about words when its faults are addressed. It's always words and syllables and, well, let's look that, let's get a dictionary and words. But Christian repentance wants to necessarily confess, fall, and ask forgiveness. Eight, False non-repentance sees itself as pretty great. It searches for specific examples to prove it and is proud when confronted. True Christian repentance sees itself as wretched from the heart, has specific examples it will confess, and is humble. Nine. False non-repentance, if it acknowledges fault, will do so in order to get the pressure off themselves and get people off their back in order to look good and maintain public image. True Christian repentance will acknowledge faults in order to humbly serve and unite with those confronting them so as to maintain Christ's public image. Number 10. False non-repentance, not getting the log out of one's eye, will express sorrow for mistakes because of getting caught or a lowering of one's public image, but true repentance will express sorrow for mistakes because of dishonoring Christ and muddying Christ's public image. Number 11, false non-repentance experiences inner happiness and peace as a result of people laying off them and figuring out how to behave in a way that people like and then applaud them. Christian repentance experiences inner happiness and peace as a result of thinking, living, and worshiping from the heart in a way that is pleasing to Christ and happy because Christ walks with us and because he is pleased with me alone by his grace. Twelfth, False non-repentance experiences joy after their sin when they appear righteous externally and they have figured out how to behave in a way that others like. 
True Christian repentance experiences great joy after their sin is confronted, that is, the log, knowing that though they deserve hell for their personal sin, Christ loves them, endured the penalty, paid it all, and they subsequently have peace with God. And number 13 and last, false repentance persists with a roof beam in its eye. Christian repentance, though, that often accumulates beams, removes them through repentance. It is repentance. It is bathing in the humility of repentance that helps us to relate cleanly with one another and before the Lord. Two more quick minutes here. Sixth, repentance, of course, positions us to helpfully seek and speak into others' faults. We've sort of covered that here. Positions us to helpfully speak into others' faults. Again, this, this doesn't necessarily mean I have to repent of something every time, like before I address somebody. But it means we have to have the demeanor of that. That I, I'm looking, I'm making sure my heart is pure before God. Verse 4 Jesus says, how can you say to your brother, oh, let me take the, the sawdust out of your eye and behold a beam in your eye. Meaning you can't do it until you've had this demeanor of repentance. You can't do it. And notice brother. Notice again, Christ emphasizes brother, the family of Christ. Again, I want us to be encouraged, especially some of us who are newer to biblical Christianity or newer to how biblical Christianity is to operate. Maybe you've been saved for decades. There's a great safety here in being in the family. Well, don't you say, man, God's already said, look at the cross. It's loud what he said. It's okay, man. We're fenced in by grace. There's a new transparency, a new honesty. Beware, friend, if when people come to you, I mean, you're like any of those 13 things and just kind of on this defensive posture, beware. Beware, friend. We all, you know, kind of get that a little bit now and then, but if that's just like your operating mode, there's a good chance you're not saved. There's a good chance you're not. Why? Because the Holy Spirit comes to Kill the deeds of the flesh. Romans 8, 13, Galatians 5, 16 to 17. Grace safety. And, and do not say, well, I just won't ever deal with, I won't ever talk to anybody because I have these logs. That's, that's even worse. Because we need to repent and help each other. And so then number seven. Number seven. We are in complete hypocrisy. Number seven, we are in complete hypocrisy if, if we are not bathing in repentance, yet thinking on and speaking about others' faults. Complete hypocrisy. Jesus' standards for Christian relationships are uncomfortable. At least they are for me. I don't know about you. Verse five, and, and, and it just says, in the Greek it just says, hypocrite. And it's emphatic hypocrite. The Greek word means someone who puts on a mask and, and shuffles and jukes their behavior 
to get self-applause and self-glory instead of just to honor Christ. Hypocrite. Take the log out of your own eye, then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Beloved, we are commanded to help each other by addressing each other's specks. Therefore, let us be bathing in the demeanor and the humility of repentance. And those 13 things and many more that you could add. To relate cleanly with one another, we're to be bathed in the humility of repentance. You might say, okay, I see that. That's, I'm that hypocrite. How do, I, how do I turn from this fake repentance? How do I turn from my defensive posture? Come clean to Christ. He already knows. He already sees your heart. He sees that we all have a little bit or a lot of hypocrisy. And come to Him. He knows. Christ takes hypocrites. Christ died for hypocrites. Christ loves hypocrites. Christ forgives hypocrites like me and like you and like any who will come to him. That's why he was put on the cross. He forgives those who should otherwise be severely judged for their judging. So come to faith in Christ, friend. Come to him. You don't have to be terrified of him anymore because he died to take it all. Believe on him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love to send Christ. We all need him greatly. Greatly we need him. And thank you, Lord Jesus, that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, Lord. And help us go from here operating in godly biblical relationships by your grace alone. In Jesus' name, amen.